You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is Will Mavity's interview with the makeup and miniature designer of the film Hereditary, Steve Newburn. Sorry about you, Grandma. You know you were her favorite. Who's going to take care of me when you die? She isn't gone. You know you were her favorite. I swear I can feel her in the room. You know you were her favorite, right? Ah! Something is happening. I think my mother put a curse on us. Mom? I need to call the police. The police can't help us. Mom? favorite right there you're listening to yet another episode of the next best picture podcast i have with us steve newburn the makeup and prosthetic artist and miniature designer for a24's horror hit hereditary steve how are you i'm doing good how are you i'm doing fantastic you've got to be loving all the press your film's getting these days yeah i i I, you can't complain when you get, you know, good press, bad press, you know, there's no such thing as bad press. Right. So, <laughs> uh, but no, it's getting really good uh, reviews with the, the uh, critics. So certainly can't complain about that. So how did you end up working on a film like hereditary? I have a special effects company in Toronto, um, that, uh, we've done a lot of, TV movies, etc. I mean, things like Suicide Squad, and uh, we just finished Shazam. We've worked on Triple X movies and the uh, Vin Diesel stuff, uh, just tons and tons of different stuff. Um, but uh, in any case, uh, got a call from the production manager of the movie when it, it which was originally Hereditary, was going to shoot in Toronto. Uh, it was supposed to happen in the winter, uh, you know, blizzards and snowstorms and just be even that much more bleak. But um, for various reasons, it ended up ultimately going to Utah. But in any case, I got involved in it when it was up in Toronto. Um, production manager contacted me about doing the prosthetic part of the show. And I was speaking with Ari about that after going through the script. And I'd noticed in the script that all these miniatures and such as well that uh, Tony Collette's character Annie is building and as an artist. I just kind of passingly mentioned it to him, hey, who's doing all this model and miniature stuff? Because I also have a background in that. Mm-hmm. And um, he was like, well, we don't have anybody yet. This is amazing. Great. We want you to do everything, you know. <laughs> and <laughs> at, the, at the time, it sounded ambitious enough. And the, with the schedule that they were proposing for shooting it in Toronto, it was, I was thinking like, I don't know if we can actually take on both aspects of the job that's getting into a crazy amount of work. But um, yeah, I mean, through various discussions and whatever, Ari eventually talked me into it. And um, yeah, so we started talking about uh, everything on the show, uh, you know, focusing on the miniatures, which of course are almost a character in the movie. And um, yeah, ultimately uh, it was, it went over the Christmas break of 2016. So we were supposed to start prepping right after the holidays movie would start shooting in March and uh, various political things happened over that (laughs) time period. Uh, Shall we say over the holidays and into January 
And uh, as I said, they moved down to Utah. Uh, but, you know, Ari and I developed this bit of a bond at that point where, you know, we, I think we were really, you know, we talked everything through so much and we were really on the same page of everything that it was just, I kind of went with it and carried, carried along. So ended up uh, continuing down to Utah. So ultimately how much leeway did Ari give you on designing all these? Like, did you, a lot of these locations are never even seen on screen. Did he give you kind of a framework and say, go wild? Tell me a little bit about that process. Yeah, so, uh, you know, it was a big discussion, but I mean, he, when we started the, uh, talking about it, he had already, he, he was super thorough. He thought of every detail in the script, you know, I mean, he knew it inside and backwards. And, you know, I mean, I guess that's the advantage of having a director who also wrote the script. Uh, you know, if there's no questions to him, he knows everything. So he had already developed a whole list of what he felt were the the miniatures he wanted to see in the movie. Um, it's probably about a dozen pieces, uh, about half of them related to scenes in the movie and locations within the actual context of the movie. The other half were related to, you know, the, the, the family, but they weren't things you were actually going to see. And um, because the locations hadn't been settled on uh, either in Toronto or in Utah at that point, obviously, um, I suggested that uh, we could start, you know, mulling over what were these uh, pieces that wouldn't be seen. One was a preschool. One was, you know, where Charlie had gone to school. One where it was uh, the hospice where her mother, Ellen, had been when she passed away. Um, uh, a few strange little things that uh, were parts of the story that there was like a secret bedroom kind of thing, uh, which was Ellen's the grandmother's bedroom in the house, which the door was always locked. Now this is, there, there's a bit of an element to that where it's kind of been taken out of the movie and the hour of deleted scenes, but um, uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, but so there's a, there was a model of that where she just basically built this hallway, you know, with a, a locked door on it and signs basically saying, you know, go away, don't come in kind of thing. It was just, you know, how she, you know, translated her feelings about her mother and, and whatnot into her artwork. But um, so we had this series of things that didn't actually relate specifically to the movie. So pulled up a lot of reference uh, from the internet, just different preschool looks, for example, you know, uh, went back and forth about what he liked, what he didn't like, you know, and then just kind of took all that and kind of cobbled it together into uh, a little diorama of sorts that would fit the context of what, you know, he wanted to see, um, what he felt was relevant and what would also kind of fit within the footprint of basically four by four feet, which was um, what we felt we could more or less uh, carry through on each of the pieces uh, as a size that we could still fit into a gal uh, her artist gallery workshop. There's one piece that's not in her gallery workshop that I was really intrigued about, and that is this giant three-tiered building that's by the staircase. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, that one, there's another one that is, uh, it's a little house, two-story house with a lot of bars and chains and steel deck and vault doors and everything on all the windows and doors and everything. Those two pieces, uh, this was a kind of an afterthought um, that we felt, well, she's an artist, you know, she's been doing this. This isn't like it's her first, you know, foray into the into what she's doing. She's, she's had previous exhibits. So those were supposed to be two of the pieces from one of her previous exhibits a few years earlier uh, that she just held on to, not sold, whatever, you know, but they, they ended up falling in as being, uh, you know, decoration within the 
the house. Um, there were others at one point that we talked about doing it, but I mean, it's, it's an independent movie and, you know, funds are limited. So, uh, you know, we, we wanted to put stuff into what was going to be featured versus, you know, uh, things that were just going to be set dressing and you might see them and you might not. Tell me a little bit about working with a small budget like this, because you have a background designing miniatures for films like Inception, The Dark Knight Rises, and the X-Men films. How did you manage to make do with a significantly smaller budget and still deliver this quality of work? Well, it's a different thing. I mean, you know, you get into movies like those, you're trying to build something that is, you know, intended to be seen as a visual within the movie. I mean, you're not supposed to see, like, I was part of the, the opening scene of Dark Knight Rises with the, the aerial heist and the plane that gets wings torn off and all this. And you're supposed to perceive that as a real plane. So, I mean, you're big, building it at a larger scale uh, to help sell the realism of it. But, you know, it's also a, a large mechanical effect with, you know, cables and, you know, explosives and all the other things that go along with tearing that, that apart, as an example. So, you know, there's, there's obviously inherently a lot more development in that as far as how does this work and how do we make this function because we're only going to get two or three attempts at this. And more often than not, these big movies, when they, when they do use the miniatures, they're, they're used as, again, as a, a scene within the movie where you're blowing something up, you're, you're tearing something apart, you're knocking something down, that sort of thing. Um, so in this context, we're literally building like little tabletop dioramas. You know, I mean, some were little, some weren't so little, but it's a static thing. It doesn't have to do anything really, but be there and look kind of like what, you know, either the artwork is or what the set is in this case uh, for some of them. So there's not nearly the R&D expense uh, of just figuring things out mechanically and sure. and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's, it's not much different than building a model railroad at home. I mean, it's, you know, <laughs> you kind of go into it knowing what you're going to do and you start doing it. And it's like, you're, you're, yeah, there's labor costs obviously. And then there's materials costs, but uh, you know, we kind of went through it and, you know, because I was basically designing all these in discussion with Ari that, uh, you know, we kind of had an idea of what our budget was going to be. And it was like, we could design accordingly. So um, yeah, it just, uh, it, it just kind of works out. It's, it's not really the same thing. Uh, it's applying the same skills, but not in the same fashion. So did you get to bury any delightful little Easter eggs in any of these sets that people haven't noticed yet? Um, I wouldn't say if we did. <laughs> uh, I'll take that as a I yes. I not, although I've heard since that there were one or two little things <laughs> that are in there. I'm not going to say what they were. Okay. And... I guess you designed a lot of this, a lot of your miniatures before production designer Grace Yoon and set decorator Brian Lives, Lives, am I pronouncing that correctly, uh-huh. had yeah. even really finished with the set. So did you have significant influence ultimately over what it was they did? Yeah, the, the models that didn't relate to locations in the movie, I had actually designed all that stuff before Grace or, or any art. Uh, I'm sorry, art, I'm going blank, sorry. Before Grace was hired, and uh, uh, just just from talking with Ari. Uh, again, that, that came from the transition from being in Toronto down to Utah. So a lot of this stuff was already designed before yeah. he got to Utah, before Grace was ever in the picture. Uh, once Grace was in the picture, um, she, you know, we talked. She was in Utah with Ari, so they would uh, talk, you know, obviously daily. 
And we were doing Skype calls every day and just talking about talking things through that and uh, just figuring things out. And I actually got once they start over. <laughs> so much happening. Um, so originally it wasn't going to be uh, shot on stages, which it ultimately was. It was all completely built on sound stages. Uh, originally they were going to shoot everything on location. So I had actually gone down to Utah to scout all those locations, took you know hundreds, thousands of photos and measurements, and you know of everything that we needed to duplicate, and part of that scout, you know, the production manager came out, you know, and it was like the first time where all the department heads, you know, the stunt coordinator and the special effects supervisor and all the various department heads were out looking at the locations for the first time as well. And we just, between all of us, we're just like, well, here's a problem there and that's not going to work and that's not going to work. And the stunt coordinator would be like, well, that ceiling overhead in this attic location isn't going to support my rigging, you know, and uh, the floor of this attic might collapse if you put 25 people up here and camera dollies and so on and so forth. And it was just, uh, you know, we're on at the first floor of this heist, you know, which they did a similar thing, but a completely different, uh, similar footprint, like floor plan, but a completely different decor to it. And then they were actually at one point talking about re- resurfacing the entire kitchen and new tiling and new cabinet facing. Oh my God. And it just got to this, yeah, it got to this point where, you know, you're basically rebuilding all this stuff to meet your needs. And it's like you're spending the money anyway, build it on a stage where you have controlled environment. You can build walls that are removable, you know, which helped in the context of this whole dollhouse motif that Ari wanted where, uh, you know, you didn't know necessarily if you were looking into the dollhouse or if you were looking into the set, you know. And there's honestly shots in there that, you know, if I didn't know, I wouldn't, you know, it was a visual effect or a model or the house i i can't even pick them apart well like the opening shot for example that transition is seamless yeah, yeah. and uh you know and, it's, and funny enough there's two different versions of that you watch the trailer versus the version of it versus the movie version and they're actually different yeah so it, it it was just a thing that once grayson uh was involved and with ari there and we wouldn't like i said we're skyping back and forth and going over these things and and the, it just developed slowly we uh once they abandoned the house locations, we still had the funeral home, for example, uh, that's in the opening of the movie with Ellen's funeral, and she's building that as a diorama uh, when she flips out and starts smashing things, uh, which was also a, a much longer scene of her smashing everything in the room, you know. Was that hard for you to watch? <laughs> no, because it's what we do a lot. Like, most of the stuff we build in this, this environment, you know, the, the miniature world gets smashed or blown up. So, I mean, it's like... It's almost fun to watch. Uh, <laughs> At least it's going to a good you know, cause this time. Exactly, exactly. I mean, it, it was fun with Tony because, you know, she's just like, I don't want to do this. And I mean, I, I heard an interview that she did for the BBC, and it was really kind of funny because she, she kind of flashed back to it. And was just like, I felt like I was killing your babies. I remember <laughs> up on the day saying that. Like, I feel like I'm killing your children or something, you know? <laughs> it was just like, no, this is great. <laughs> but, um, we'll get you on record. Steve Newbert wants his babies killed. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so anyway, it was, uh, it, it all kind of worked its way through with the exception of that Ram House model that they do the pan in on the uh, first or the opening of the movie. Uh, that one, because it was, specifically related to all these sets being built, you know, and now suddenly they'd abandoned the locations that that was a bit of a setback for us, you know, so we were trying to plan that as, as thoroughly as we could while it was still being designed on paper. 
yeah, they would bring in furniture, for example, and thankfully, you know, they were bringing the furniture starting almost immediately. And they already had a lot of pieces in mind that they were going to use when they were actually looking at location. So we were able to start working on that stuff at least and start duplicating those pieces. Um, half of them didn't get used ultimately. So we built a lot of stuff that didn't ultimately see the light of day, but, uh, the main house model, um, not the contents of it, but the structure of it was basically, it was a very last minute thing. I think we built that in, in the two weeks before it actually filmed because, Oh my God. Yeah. It was, it was, a, it was a huge rush. It was basically 10 days, um, where they'd been building the sets. And so we knew what the sets were, but we didn't know what the finishes were inside. We didn't know what the wallpaper was going to be, what the paint was going to be, what, you know, um that sort of thing uh and then the bigger problem once that was established the problem for me and my my people was that the first floor was designed as a set to be independent of the second floor they didn't build a house on a soundstage they Mm. built a first floor set right right it was never something in the uh that had been figured out exactly how that second floor would marry to the first floor and how that would all translate into the exterior location and sit inside that house that they had for an exterior. It was always kind of in the back of people's minds, but it was not something that, uh, it was, it was so, you know, last minute with a lot of this stuff because we couldn't push. I mean, there was a point I remember everybody was saying we should push this for a few weeks and just so we can all get our bearings and like, you know, get caught up. And because construction teams were working around the clock seven days a week to try and get the sets built. And, and, but we couldn't because Tony Collette had uh, another project to go to. And so her schedule was locked. I mean, she had to, she had a drop dead date where she had to be out of there. Mm. And so there was no pushing anything. We had to just make it work. And so they were going, you know, insane down in Utah trying to get the sets built, you know, and then the art, uh, the art department and Grace and all them are trying to get everything designed and get all that situated. And, you know, I think because we're not actually there every day to test them, you know, and be like, I need designs too, or I can't, I need to look at stuff too. You know, I mean, it became a thing of like, not an afterthought, but it was just, it's not right in the front of your mind. What's in, you know, what's in my, in your mind, and, you know, is what's in your vision. <laughs> you know? So, uh, it got to a point where, you know, about two and a half, three weeks before I had to have everything finished and shipped, I was calling down almost in a panic at one point being like, I really, I, I don't know what to do. I, I need this information. I, I, you know, I'm going to do it myself. And then it was finally <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, I'm just going to figure it out, you know? And, uh, you know, finally at that point, I think it was kind of a little bit of a reality check where we were like, Oh God, yeah, we got to get to that too. You know? <laughs> I just love that this is a film about people being driven to madness by anxiety. And it sounds like the production did that to you guys too. Well, it, it, it was stressful. I mean, I know Anari's talked about it in a couple places too, where he's just mentioned it in interviews where he's just like, Oh God, we were building right to the 11th hour with the models and they would show up the day before. And, and, and that's all true. And it was just, it wasn't, you know, through neglect or oversight or anything like that. It was everybody was doing what they needed to do, but it was just because we didn't have that luxury of being able to push the schedule, which most productions can do that if they're, you know, behind or, you know, this wasn't behind. It was just because it had completely been reimagined to be on stage rather than location, you know, and, you know, that's, that's a whole new set of concerns and issues that have to be dealt with. 
so it was just the volume of work and, you know, really pushing everything to the nth degree for the budget, you know, for the, for a movie like that, it's an independent film, doesn't have a huge budget, but, you know, everyone on board was trying to make it look like a, you know, a hundred million dollar, you know, movie, you know, and, you know, they've got 10, whatever. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so, you know, it was, it was just, you know, pure ambition, I think on everybody's part, it was really just pushing, driving and pushing the whole thing forward and, you know, trying to make it look just incredible. And so anyway, they, we came to this compromise where we pushed all the model shoot back to the very end of the schedule and uh, the shooting schedule which uh, was good, obviously. And I was bouncing back and forth between my shop and Utah to shoot, you know, some of the makeup effects side of it with bodies and, you know, things like that. And while I was down there, I would run around and take photos of everything they've been doing. So I would, I would gather a lot of my own reference that way and measurements and whatnot, and then come back and hand that off to everybody. And, Oh, we don't need that thing anymore. They're not going to use that after all. And so it was just this back and forth thing. And then, you know, Grace, of course, and, you know, our department all doing the same thing. If just anytime they had information, they'd shoot it up to me as soon as they could. And, you know, and it was, it was just a, a very, very ambitious thing that we didn't, have the time to do but we made happen (laughs) (laughs) so you mentioned the makeup and i do want to ask a little bit about that obviously you there's the obvious stuff like burned corpses and decomposing bodies but is there any subtle makeup work that you haven't had the chance to talk about did you do any work on tony or millie to uh, exacerbate the state that their characters were in not exactly uh one of the the only thing that really ever came up was with um with millie was when she's having the allergic reaction they wanted her to have this some swelling in her face and things like that and i actually had uh i was fortunate enough uh to get a guy i'm from la originally and i worked in the industry out there for years and there was a guy uh that had worked out there I should, well, with me, I guess you could say in the sense that we were both there at the same time on different shows, but, you know, I knew of him. Well, he was from Utah originally, and he'd moved back to Utah, and he happened to be on the ground there, uh, you know, just a local guy, Chris Hansen. And uh, so he would cover for me for a lot of things when I couldn't be there when I was back up north. Uh, he was handling a lot of that that end of it. And there were little things like this allergic reaction, which we had talked about early on, um, you know, this, like just little swollen eye bags and things like that, that uh, he wanted to see, or he wanted to see. And uh, it was just last second stuff where I had Millie's head cast for her decapitation. <laughs> and, you know, and it was just one of those things that was like, ah, maybe we'll do it. Maybe we won't do it. You know, and it was just one of those things that went back and forth, back and forth. And it just kind of got forgotten about initially. And then when it got closer, they decided that, yeah, they really wanted to do it. And I was just like, you know what, I, I don't have time to deal with this. And uh, Greg Moon, who was the makeup department head, and then uh, Abby Spencer was his key. I was telling them, I don't have time to do with it, uh, deal with this stuff. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's a small thing. <laughs> And, and, and they, they work with Chris a lot, all being local. So they called uh, Chris, you know, who was already working with me and uh, asked him to do a few little uh, appliances, just swollen pieces for her. So that would be the only thing there with Alex Wolf. Uh, we had done where he goes through the window of the attic at the end 
Ari wanted him originally just to look like a, a porcupine of broken glass shards stuck in him. Oh, and so we'd made hundreds of little appliances to stick on him. And uh, this was one of the things that I just kind of left with uh, with Abby and Chris. Uh, one of the times I couldn't be there, you know, they shot that and uh, the after part of that. And for whatever reason, they just didn't do it. There's, there's a handful of them on him, but, you know, it wasn't nearly as graphic i guess uh what we had talked about at one point um oh god that would have been tony we have yeah yeah and then tony was uh full wraparound silicone neck when she saws her head off yeah i would assume <laughs> so yeah so we had a which was an interesting piece i had like and we made it up in toronto did a bunch of tests up in toronto with it and um you know, how do you garrot your head off, you know, on camera where it actually starts digging in and bleeding actively and all that. I don't know if anybody's done that. I'm sure somebody has somewhere, but I don't recall seeing it. But we basically buried a, uh, a Teflon guide tube underneath the appliance along with the bloodlines and everything and ran this piano wire um, through that tube and out through the uh, out through corners the appliance and she could literally start saw- sawing into this appliance and you know then it bleeds and so on and so forth so we tested all that up north and then uh took that down there and then that's another thing that chris helped me apply so yeah <laughs> nothing with gabriel Byrne. <laughs> well you, you do have a bird corpse at the end obviously though so yes but that's it's actually not him it was, yeah, that I, was yeah. god that is, was there ever an intent a intent to show Millie's decapitation or was that always going to happen off screen and then be left for reveal of that head sitting there in the foreground? No, we did shoot it. Uh, there's a couple frames of it, but it's so fast. You hardly see it. It was one of those things where it went through a couple iterations. Uh, originally it was like, my, my concern was how do you ensure that this dummy the puppet that we're building is going to you know hit the mark squarely on this post you know in a moving car that's going 60 miles an hour and so in talking with the stunt coordinator and the special effects supervisor we came up with this idea of putting the car onto a track and doing all this stuff and you know you knew exactly where it was going to hit and and that sort of thing and uh i was like great okay so now we know so i'd actually built an entire mechanical dummy of her from the waist up you know head movement and you know arm and shoulder movement and all this kind of stuff and then found out through a passing conversation with the uh, stunt coordinator that they weren't doing the track anymore. And I was like, <laughs> okay, well, so the, the mechanic, all the mechanics of that were from another dummy I had made for suicide squad. And, um, oh, you know, it, it, it's a slipknot, right? No, it was for the, it's for a lot of the EA, a lot of the EA stuff. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. We did do a slipknot thing, but no, this was for a lot of the EA gags with their heads being smashed and whatnot. But, um, Anyway, uh, it built this for that movie and just retrofitted it to work, you know, shrunk things down and made things a little smaller. But, you know, it's still an expensive rig. And I was like, I'm not really willing to loan you something that could potentially hit a post at 60 (laughs) miles an hour and be destroyed. (laughs) So we had to rebuild that part of it. But we still, you know, built this thing that had, you know, a couple takes worth of, you know, a head that would come off and the entire face of it would crush in, you know, and just like, I mean, it would basically go from looking exactly like Millie to uh, what you saw on the road afterward. (laughs) Uh, 
as far as what would break away. But as it comes off, I mean, you know, and we shot one take of it and it, it worked perfectly. And it was one of those things that everyone went, Oh, and then started, you know, cheering. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> you know, cause I mean, it, it hit the post and it just kind of came off and the whole face smashed in, it came off and it just kind of somersaulted through the air. And as it's doing it, there's guts flying everywhere. Do you think if Mythbusters uh, were to look at this, they would say, yes, hitting a telephone pole at 18 miles an hour would actually knock your head off then? That's what it sounds like you're proving to us. Believe it or not, we actually did a lot of research on that. Of like, what would it actually be the condition of your head? You know, <laughs> if, if something, you, know, you can find stuff online of accidents and stuff that have you know happened mostly down in South America, but uh, you know, really grisly photos. You know, and so we kind of went in and just based it off of that. You know, where the head went to and the, the, the amount of damage to it. You know, and you know, I mean, I. I I think at one point people were thinking it was just going to explode like a watermelon and it was just like, no, your head's actually really pretty strong. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so, I mean, it was kind of based on reality and, uh, yeah, so the head came off and they shot it and, and, uh, I think ultimately I think Ari made the right decision. It's all done in the editing room where they have that take. I, I have it on my phone, you know, but it's one of these things that, um, you know, if you show that and then, cut away to Peter's reaction, is it going to have the same impact of, you know, as a, from a dramatic standpoint of showing Peter just in shock? I'm not sure, you know, you, you might lose it because you're going to have some people, because this is all in the course of seconds. Some people are going to be repulsed. Other people are going to be cheering, you know, um, you know, so you're not really going to get the impact of Peter's reaction. So I think first off there's that element. So cutting it down or out works in that respect, but then, most movies, if you know you cheated that shot or you didn't show the impact, you know, and you didn't actually see anything, you know, you know, most movies they would that would be the end of it, you know, and you wouldn't ever go back to it. The next scene would be the funeral kind of thing or whatever. And so the fact that they went back to the head the next morning and ants are crawling all over it and all that kind of stuff, it's something you don't generally see that kind of con, you know, like uh, that kind of. Uh, a continuity and things, you know, of, uh, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, you just don't, you don't generally see that kind of a, a uh, an editing to, to the, the scene. So, you know, uh, I think it just makes the showing it on the road the next morning that much more impactful. Did you guys actually get ants on it? Um, we had, we, we had a bug wrangler on the movie who brought in six or 8,000 ants. And, uh, you know, just basically you spray sugar water around it and they just, it kind of keeps them together. So, you know, you bring them in in little like deli cups, you know, and just, okay, that's a thousand ants. <laughs> it became kind of a joke of like, you know, I, I remember asking him at one point, like, how do you know there's a thousand ants in there? Do you weigh them? He's like, no, <laughs> oh, <my God. laughs> oh, that's a job right there. Yeah. So there was a thousand ants, like literally a thousand ants dumped on top of that head, you know, which crawled around and they shot it real quick on the side of the road with cars driving by and people looking at us like, what the hell? And, <laughs> <laughs> and um, you know, it, it was very kind of guerrilla filmmaking and we just ran out there and shot it in like, you know, 15 minutes and then came back to the studio uh, and went back into actually, because we had the bug wrangler there, we went back into the, the nightmare thing of Peter's, you know, the trail of ants. Oh, did you? Okay, so do we actually put ants in Alex Wolf too? It was a dummy. Now, that was another one that um, the stunt coordinator had said, I'll get somebody to do that. 
And we all kind of went like, that's ridiculous. That's yeah. <laughs> crazy. But we built, uh, we, like I, I'd done a live cast of Alex in New York and made like a silicone mask of him that a stunt person could wear. And, you know, it was one of those things where we kind of looked at it and we we're just kind of like, this isn't going to work. <laughs> <laughs> you know, dumping 5,000 amps on someone's head. This isn't right. And so this was another one of the things. It was like a very last minute decision. So we, we kind of scrapped the scene that day. We're like, we'll come back to it in a week or two and figure something out how we're going to do this. And we came up with the idea of doing a dummy head of Alex. So that was another thing where we were trying to get all the models at that point done with the house in particular. It was right towards, you know, two thirds mark maybe on the shoot. So we're, we're really focused on the house. I'm like, I can't do it. I can't do it. <laughs> so uh, again, Chris uh, Hansen, who was working with me down there, um, you know, he has his own little company down there that does stuff in Utah for production. So, uh, you know, they talked to him about just throwing something out really fast. And he took the mask that we had made and, you know, modified that and re-sculpted it a little bit and then turned it into a full head uh, that he stuck on a little mannequin body of sorts. And, you know, that's what's actually in the shot. It was a very last-minute thing. I think he did it in a couple days. Well, I think we're about out of time, but before I go, I wanted to ask, is there anything else you would love to tell people about what you did on Hereditary that no one has given you the chance to talk about yet? Oh, you know what? I mean, I, I'm really just surprised how much... It, it's nice to see how much attention we're getting. I mean, Ari, like, I'd always said we'd be, like, with the models in particular, of course, you know, they, they'd be really featured in the movie, and it was just really nice to see that actually happen. So, you know, I mean, we've had a, uh, a few people talk to us about it. I, I don't know what's actually shown up out there yet in articles. Uh, I haven't done any podcasts or anything. Um, Tony's talked about it a couple times. Ari constantly brings this up. So, I mean, I, I think between everybody, uh, you know, most of the stuff is out there <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know. There's There's... I wouldn't say there's anything in particular about the build, you know, per se, that I, that I can talk about. There's obviously always those things that, you know, uh, are hush-hush until the studio says that you can go ahead and talk about them. Of but, course. Uh, you know, every production has that. But, um, you know, it's just, uh, I don't know, I'm grateful to Ari for the opportunity. I saw him here a few weeks, maybe a month ago now. At a tip screening of the movie. It was the first time I'd actually been able to sit through the movie. And, uh, <laughs> you know, we got it for a bit afterward. And, you know, I, I'm I'm happy to see him doing so well because you know he's so passionate about everything, and I just can't say enough good things. So, uh, yeah, I mean it was a, it was a good experience, a good crew, and can't can't complain. All right, man. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah. Uh, I'm Will Navity. You can uh, find me online at Mavericks Movies. You've been listening to the Next Best Picture Podcast. You can subscribe subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, PlayerFM, and CastBox. Be sure to leave us a review and let us know what you think of the show. Uh, thank you so much again for coming on the show, man. The, your, your work is incredible and just okay. fascinating to hear how you put it together. So uh, I look forward to seeing much more work of yours in the future. And best of luck throughout the rest of the year with this film. Yeah, thank you.
Don't you know that you're a grown-up? I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. Alright, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I've never done it. (laughs) Right.